I'm Abigail Disney. Welcome to All Ears, my podcast where I get to go deep with some super smart people. This season, I'm talking to good troublemakers, artists, activists, politicians, and others who aren't afraid to shake up the status quo. We'll talk about their work, how they came to do what they do, and why it's so important in hard times to think big. You can't think about solutions without being a little optimistic. And man, oh man, I think we need some optimism right now. So join me every Thursday for some good troublemaking. Well, listen, people, the Democrats did it. Joe Biden is our president, and don't let any of the kooks tell you otherwise. The way things are going, January 20th, cannot come fast enough, at least for me. But as we Monday morning quarterback all the strategies and the stars, the true MVP of this show is Stacey Abrams, whose delivery of the state of Georgia to the Democrats in 2020 would make Napoleon weep. I interviewed Stacy back in July about the work she was doing in Georgia and around the country. And at the time, she was really ringing the alarm bell. We're not just having a redo of 2016 in this election. We're having a redo of 2010. And if people remember the halcyon you know, glory days of 2009, 2010, we get the Affordable Care Act, we get some really good legislation, and then we sleep on the midterm election Republicans not only take over Congress, they take over for the next decade because they win state elections and they draw the maps and they use the census to give themselves power for a decade. If this happens in 2020, it will not be a decade lost. It will be a generation lost. And of course, Stacy was not just wringing her hands. She was busy organizing and helping build a coalition of grassroots operations in red states and in swing states. We are doing our work to make sure that people know they have the right to vote, that they stay in line. We're operating in 18 states. We're helping to do voter protection and protect voter turnout in this upcoming election. Stacy is the former minority leader in the Georgia House of Representatives, and God bless her, she loves the incredibly boring details of what it takes to make government systems function. And that all starts with a voting process that works for every voter. In the past two years, her coalition in Georgia registered more than 800,000 new voters, many of whom were young and or people of color. It's this focused effort that helped put Biden and Harris over the top. When you shut down a polling place in a wealthy enclave where someone can just get an Uber or a Lyft, you're fine. But when you shut down a polling place where everyone relies on public transit and the bus doesn't stop there, voters can't vote. And that's presuming they live in a community with public transit. What I think is happening on the Republican side, they've been convinced or allowed themselves to be convinced that voter fraud is real, which it is not. And I think that's the piece that's just starting to be revealed. I don't know if it'll be revealed in time for this election, but my mission is to make sure no one can say they weren't told. Stacey Abrams was so on the money for the 2020 election that we thought it might be worth revisiting her Prussian insights. And she's not just shaking up national politics. She's also kind of a super citizen with a great backstory and an amazing family and a very interesting sideline. It's well worth a listen. Oh, and one more thing. 
On November 6th, when Stacy tweeted a thank you out to all the leaders who helped organize this transformative effort in Georgia, she ended with, always John Lewis. There he is again, our good troublemaker. See how that works? Enjoy my conversation with Stacey Abrams from July 9th, 2020. We'll be back next week with musician David Byrne. You know where I want to start? I want to start with romance novels, please. Okay. <laughs> okay, so wait, what? <laughs> Tell me about this. So I grew up reading romance novels. I've always loved them. I also grew up watching uh, General Hospital, especially during their Luke and Laura. Oh, my God. Uh, Robert and Anna, the WSB, all of that. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. So by the time I was in... High school actually wrote my first attempt at a romance novel in high school. It did not go too far because I was or actually I was in middle school, so I didn't know enough to write a full novel. And, <laughs> yeah, and then, the the heaving chests or whatever don't really make much sense. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then when I was in law school, my last year of law school, I wanted to write a spy novel. It was going to be based on my ex boyfriend's dissertation on microzeolites. He was a chemical physicist. There was a time I thought I wanted to be a physicist. But when I pitched it to a couple of friends who've been in publishing, they both said, this is an amazing story, but publishers do not publish spy novels by or about women. Mm. This was in 1999. And I, I looked around and indeed, there were no espionage novels by women. And there were none about women. And I'm like, I know I've read about women spies. And I was like, wait. <laughs> Those were romance novels. Right. And so I killed all the people I meant to kill. I just made my spies fall in love. And that was my first romance <laughs> novel. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And have your novels sold well? They they have. I like to tell folks the advances I got in the sales uh, were enough to pay car notes, not to buy a whole car. Because the other impediment for me was that I was writing not only uh, romantic suspense, which is in a very mm-hmm. specific uh, field within romance, But I was also writing with African-American and characters of color. Mm -hmm. I was very intentional about that. And romance, especially in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was no space. There were very few romantic suspense writers who were Black. And so I was only ever sold as a Black writer, which, of course, constrained access to the market. But my books have sold more than 100,000 copies. Wow, that's amazing. So you and I were on this really interesting episode of the cut, this podcast that I think comes from New York Magazine, and I was so struck by your story. You're running for office, and you have one of those standard Republican monkey wrenches thrown at you. Look at her. She has debt. She's carrying debt. How can she possibly (laughs) hold an office when she can't manage her own finances? And the way you reacted to that was beautiful. I knew that my debt would be an issue, and much like the story about my brother who has been in, in and out of uh, prison, we are trained in politics to not talk about our the frailties. We You don't talk about the things that can be used against you. And my campaign for governor was about how people could trust me, how communities that typically have deep distrust and deep dissatisfaction, why I was different, why this time could be different. And it couldn't be different if I tried to hide some of the most honest parts of my life. So I got my brother's permission to talk about his incarceration, talk about his mental illness, his drug addiction. And I got my parents' permission to 
talk about why I was in debt. Mm-hmm. My mom and dad are Methodist ministers. And in 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit my mom's church. My dad ran the outreach ministry there. Essentially, the church was incapable of supporting them anymore, but it was still necessary. And my parents continued to serve, continued to be the hub for Hurricane Katrina recovery in Stone County for years. And I became their primary uh, source of income. Mm-hmm. The following year in 2006, they adopted my niece, uh, who had just been born to my, my brother and his girlfriend, who were in between rehab. And that added another layer of expense. Mm-hmm. I was able to manage it for a time, but it was always precarious because I had built my life for me. I had not expected to have mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> an additional family. And I'd run for office, which meant I was also self-employed for most of that time. Yeah. And then fast forward, every time I almost dug out, something else happened, including my dad getting diagnosed with prostate cancer. You can delay tax payments, but you mm-hmm. can't delay cancer treatment payments. You can't delay cancer treatment. Yeah at all. And so I made the very intentional decision to support my family. Mm -hmm. And I know that I wasn't the only one and that so many Americans are forced to make these choices. I thank God that I have the ability to shift my resources to meet their needs. And I know so many people who don't have that option. Right. And the fact that the Republicans just assume they could hang your debt around your neck like a badge of shame was so toe deaf about the nature of debt in most people's lives nowadays. I mean, do you feel like, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. To be in the state legislature, by and large, in Georgia is a part-time job, which means you have to have the resources to Mm. permit you to only work part-time and to take off from January to April every year. Mm. And that tends to mean that people come from resources. Or if they don't have those resources, sometimes their willingness to have hard conversations, it's outmatched by their need. And and I don't don't fault them. Mm -hmm. But part of the reason I ran for office was because I actually lived a life of complication. And I think those complications need not be permanent. I think those challenges are solvable and that you, you have this responsibility to not simply bemoan the, you know, bemoan your fate, you know, the the line, you know, you know, it's better to light a candle than curse the darkness. I think it's better to pass a bill and to fix a law than it is to just say, oh, well, poverty will always be among us. No, it's only here as long as we let it be. My mom and dad always taught us, you know, you don't just talk about problems, you fix them. Right. Right. I kind of want to go back to talk about your dad for a second sure. because Hattiesburg, Mississippi, mid 1960s, I think. 14 years old. Uh they both my parents were born in 49, so yeah, mid 60s. Okay. So 14, 15 years old, can't even vote yet and and he was arrested for registering voters. Yes. That's a kind of extraordinary thing to do. So what what does that tell us about you and how you were formed? Well, I mean, both of my parents were very active in the civil rights movement as teenagers. My dad was more proactive in his activism, I think, in some ways than my mom, in part because he still thinks he's impervious to harm. But for both of them, no matter what the situation presented in terms of possible harm, their belief in right is so strong mm-hmm. and inviolate. My mom's a librarian. My dad was a shipyard worker. And they became United Methodist ministers 
who requested that they be posted back in the state of Mississippi when they finished grad school in Atlanta because mm-hmm. they wanted to serve. Like my parents do not countenance mm-hmm. injustice. And even as teenagers, they understood it in a fundamental way. My grandfather had served in two tours. He'd served in both World War II mm-hmm. and the Korean War and still couldn't vote in our country. Mm-hmm. My grandmother, you know, she was a cook. Both my grandparents were cooks for years in a college, my parent, my, my dad couldn't attend. Their mm. children couldn't attend. Right. My mom's family was from even more dire circumstances. Her parents had divorced when she was young. She and her siblings essentially raised themselves mm. uh, to no small extent after their father passed away. Mm. And she, too, understood that part of the destitution they faced was not because of a lack in them. It was because of a deficiency in a system that did not value them and did not see them as worthy. Right. And so you know, she came from a line of domestic workers and you know, my grandfather picked up trash. That's how they could make ends meet because they weren't seen as part of either the civil society or certainly part of a civic right. society. Right, right. It sounds like you're romanticizing things when you ask a question like this, but I do think that the barriers and the obstacles have a way of refining character. I would say that both of my parents are gifted with an innate sense of good. Mm -hmm. They are people who faced challenges that were both, you know, environmental, some were legal, uh, some were conditional. My father is dyslexic and he grew up a young black dyslexic boy in Mississippi in segregated schools where they had no diagnosis. They just thought he was stupid. And so he grappled with that most of his life. And I I think about how his navigation of his space has always been tempered by under expectation, by legal barriers, and by his just innate sense of drive. (laughs) My dad does not believe in obstacles. My mom, she dropped out of elementary school because her family couldn't afford for her to go to school. They couldn't pay for the bus. She didn't have the right clothes. Mm. But when she finally, you know, was courageous enough to go back, there was a teacher who had left a note in her file saying, if Carolyn Hall ever comes back, move her on to the next grade. And that really galvanized my mom to stay in school and become the only one of her seven siblings to finish high school. I think you're right that there is, you know, there's a refining pressure that comes with obstacles, but there is something internal. And I think both of my parents that allow them to use these challenges to make them stronger as opposed to weakening them or crushing them. You know, the fact that the that the uh, primary conflict when your father started his life as a, an activist was around voting, is, do you think that affects why you work so hard around the voting question? A- absolutely. My, my parents told us about their time in the civil rights movement, they made certain we understood not just the images that we would see, but that we understood the deep historical underpinnings of racism, of, of desegregation and why voting mattered. My parents mm-hmm. would take us with them to you know, volunteer, which was always surprising to us because we we're like, you know, we're poor too. And that was never an issue for them. (laughs) They believed Mm -hmm. that service is what you do. It's not about what your status is. My dad's way of saying it is having nothing is not an excuse for doing nothing. 
And my mom would say, no matter how little we have, there's someone with less. Your job is to serve that person. And we, you know, yes, we may not have running water. Our lights might be cut off, but we had shelter. And our job was to go and work in homeless shelters. Our job was to work in soup kitchens. We had liberty. And so they would take us to juvenile justice facilities. So they were always intentional about situating not just us in the space of doing right, but us in the space of understanding the context that, you know, even the least of these sometimes have more than the next. Mm. You know, we tease my parents, you know, we're all infected. They have six kids and none of us have figured out how to do anything other than serve. (laughs) You know, some of us have done a little bit better, you know, economically, but, you know, my oldest sister is an anthropologist who is now the chief diversity officer at her college. My sister Leslie Mm. is a judge. My brother Richard is a social worker. My brother Walter, even when we, we teased him, he was, he's been in and out of the carceral system, but my mom would tease him that Walter became sort of the jailhouse social worker. So we were, you know, I paid bail for folks that Walter mm-hmm. met in jail. We couldn't get him out, but we got out the young, young man who was you know, unfairly arrested for something minor and whose parents couldn't come up with $500. Mm-hmm. And then my little sister Janine worked for the CDC and now runs uh, Fair Count, the work we're doing on the census. Wow. And then when it comes to voting, my my parents, they also made sure we not only went to volunteer, they took us to vote. Yeah. Every election, they would take us with them. And there's six of us. So we look like make way for ducklings as we followed them into the voting booth mm. and we trailed out. <laughs> because they not only talked about voting, they wanted us to see them in the act mm. of casting a ballot. And even if our lives didn't improve with every election, even if the mm. things that they would talk about never changed, they wanted us to know that their responsibility was to never give up. And for me, that has always been the driving force. It's why I started registering students when I got to Spelman Mm. when I was 17. My inability to vote was not an excuse for not making sure that other people could. And and you published an opinion piece in the New York Times, really making the case for why voting matters. Mm -hmm. But you make this really important point about how we, especially Democrats, really overemphasize presidential elections. Can you talk about that a little bit? I I understand the focus that has been placed, particularly by Democrats, especially by Black Democrats, on the presidency, on congressional races. Because for a lot of our communities, our salvation did not come from the states. It came from the federal government. But what that presupposes and has has to invoke is the fact that the problems were created at the state level that the challenges are embedded at the state level, that most of the solutions are not federally imposed. They are state-led. And therefore, rather than waiting for this savior of a president, we need to build institutional capacity and political power in our school boards, in our county commissions, in the secretary of state's office. We need to have mayors who hire police chiefs who actually believe in reforming the tactics and the behaviors of officers. We have to have DAs that actually enforce the laws when a man is murdered in the streets. We have to have direct action, and we have to know that action is not going to come from Mount Olympus or Washington, D.C. It's going to come from our state capitals and our cities and from those folks that we can see in the grocery store. Those are the people who govern our choices and our changes 
And those are the folks that we have to pay attention to. And and as you really make a great point that like there was no federal law that allowed for Jim Crow to happen. Those were all state and local laws enforced by state and local officials. You you mentioned murders in the streets and, and accountability for police officers. I mean, where are you on the question of, you know, how is a reform enough or are we going to have to go deeper than that and to really think differently about public safety in order for things to change? I think it's a couple of pieces. Reformation is absolutely necessary because crime happens and victims deserve to be protected. And so we need to reform how we even think about the deployment of those who are charged with our safety and charged with accountability in the law. That means everything from ending qualified immunity to changing the standards for use of lethal force talking about and enforcing the obligations of de-escalation, reform is necessary because we are going to have child abusers. We are going to have rapists. There are going to be issues where we need someone to help make certain that we are protected, but that is not enough. And it is problematic to see these things in conflict. They have to be in tandem because reformation is one part, transformation is the other part. Public safety means the, the, the public is safe. And we know what guarantees the safety of a public more than anything is a well-educated population, a population that has the ability to make a living wage, a population that has affordable, safe, and stable housing, a population that doesn't live in a food desert, a population with access to health care. And so our investments have to be actually about public safety. And if that means a redistribution of the resources that have traditionally all been funneled into law enforcement because we think it's too hard to do the rest of it, then we certainly have to have a conversation about, and not just conversation, we have to have policies that transform our budgetary priorities. But we, we should not let ourselves get drawn into this false argument that it's one or the other. This is both and, and as long as they can keep us focused on the bright, shiny object that never actually comes to fruition, then they have an excuse not to do the hard work, which is the hard work of actually redistributing the resources of government to serve the needs of all. And that's why Black Lives Matter. That is why these conversations about systemic racism and systemic inequities are so vital in this moment, because we should not let ourselves go down that rabbit hole where we're fighting over semantics and they're winning the policy battle yet again. I see people beginning to see that the individual racist is not really the problem. The problem is that systems repeatedly come to racist outcomes and therefore systems need to be looked at. I would I would. Tweak what you said just a little bit. Individual racist acts matter. The, the Karens of society, that matters because we have to remember that systems are people, mm-hmm. that the systems that put these laws in place, the systems that enforce these prerogatives, the systems that maintain the oppression of entire communities and entire races, those systems aren't just these disembodied structures. They're people. They're people who make the choice in the social worker's office whether someone gets help or someone gets turned over to the police. There are people who make the choice about whether you get shot in the back when you turn away from a police officer having taken their taser or whether you just get handcuffed, which is what happened to a white guy in York, Pennsylvania, who did the exact same thing as Rayshard Brooks. It is people who make these choices Mm -hmm. and their enormous to the racist tendencies comes from these individual actions as well as from the laws that justify these actions as being perfectly legitimate. 
And then it's those small micro moments where a woman picks up a phone to call the police Mm -hmm. because someone asked her a question she didn't like. We can't allow ourselves to think that these are separate. They are parallel. They are intertwined. But I do believe we are having more legitimate dialogue. Yeah, I'm hopeful in a way I haven't been before, except then I start thinking about the federal government and where we are right now. Um, How are we going to protect this election? And are we watching an authoritarian do a slow motion takeover of our system? We are watching that attempt, and it is not as slow as we would hope. Mm. The, The populist authoritarian playbook is well documented. You begin with this sort of raucous and disarmingly coarse campaign. You then move into demonizing your enemies, not as opponents, but as actual enemies. You lift up your supporters as the patriots and everyone else as a traitor. You then start to dismantle or to delegitimize institutions like the media. You try to pack the courts with the people who will support you. And if you cannot delegitimize a a democratic institution, you take it over and infect it with people who are not just partisan, but who have completely abandoned any commitment to their job being a job for the people. They become lieutenants of this authoritarian. So we've got Barr, we've got Mitch McConnell, we've got the court packing that we've seen them do. We have seen almost every vestige of this. And the last big piece is that you delegitimize the election process either by saying it's rigged if you don't win, and then by doing the rigging yourself to ensure that you do win. And we know that voter suppression is part of a 20-year effort by Republicans to ensure their longevity because their ideas are losing clout and they see their base waning. And so when you can't beat them, their decision isn't to improve their ideas. Their approach is to suppress the vote and block people from using it. So the Senate majority leader is holding up the funding that we know will be necessary to scale elections to meet the turnout that we expect, especially in the midst of a pandemic. We are watching across the country. These long lines are offensive. They are voter suppression. And while they are examples of enthusiasm, they're also examples of the failed system of administering elections that fall squarely at the feet of Republicans. But I am so emboldened by the change in demographics that we saw in 2018 that has been proven in 2020, because we have now outstripped our 2014 general election turnout. And we did that in a primary is the highest number of Democrats on record to vote in a primary. The brazenness of what they're doing is kind of mind-blowing. Is, is, is their base simply not reading the news, or what's going on with their base? Well, what, when they were told, and they've been told, that this is all about defense of the integrity of the right to vote, which is complete and utter BS. Voter suppression has never been because there was voter fraud. Voter fraud was created as a cloak to justify voter suppression. If you use their own numbers, the Heritage Foundation can detail, and I'm I'm rounding up for them, 1,300 examples of putative voter fraud out of more than 625 million votes cast just in federal elections. And I'm not counting the fact that they include federal and state elections. But the other piece of it is this. They know that the populations they target have the least amount of resilience and are the most vulnerable to any changes 
in the environment of voting. When you shut down a polling place in a wealthy enclave where someone can just get an Uber or a Lyft, you're fine. But when you shut down a polling place where everyone relies on public transit and the bus doesn't stop there, voters can't vote. And that's presuming they live in a community with public transit. What I think is happening on the Republican side, they've been inoculated to the insidious nature of voter suppression because they've been convinced or allowed themselves to be convinced that voter fraud is real, which it is not. But what we saw happen in Georgia in June was that Republicans lost the ability to vote too. Mm -hmm. Because when you break the machinery of democracy, you break it for everyone. And so while we had eight hour lines for black and brown voters, they had to extend the voting time in white rural enclaves because the same mistakes were made. Mm -hmm. And whether it's through incompetence or malfeasance, when you break democracy, it's going to eventually take everyone else down with it. And I think that's the piece that's just starting to be revealed. I don't know if it's, it'll be revealed in time for this election, but my mission is to make sure no one can say they weren't told. Yeah, yeah. And this dovetails with the census in, in a really important way. Can you talk about the way the census and the vote come together? Yeah. So in, in our time is now, I dedicate an entire chapter to the census. It is one of those secret weapons of democracy. The census allocates political power and economic power. Almost every program that we look to, to achieve what we were talking about earlier, that safety for our public, whether it's school lunches for children who are starving or Pell Grants or affordable housing or criminal justice reform or environmental action, Many of those programs are funded based on algorithms that use as their chief input the data from the census. And so if there's an undercount in the census, there is an undercount and there's an underdeployment of those resources to the communities that need them. And if you want the most stark example, think about all the black and brown folks who are dying from COVID and think about the lack of access to healthcare in those communities. One of the reasons they don't have PPE, one of the reasons they don't have the capitation rates of the hospital to take care of all those patients is that they weren't counted in the last census because we undercount communities of color, immigrant communities, poor people, rural communities. We undercount young children. And so all of the things that then lead to overcrowding in classrooms and challenges with having you know adequate access to resources begins with a decade's worth of undercounting. At the exact same time, the census is how we allocate political power. Two things happen. One is reapportionment. We reshift the 435 members of the of Congress in the House of Representatives, and we reallocate them based on growth in population in states and the loss of population. You lose population, you lose a congressman. You gain population, you gain a representative. Great. Well, if those populations are growing because of growing numbers of people of color in communities where people of color aren't counted, their political power does not shift despite their growing mm-hmm. population clout. Yeah politicians will draw the lines to preserve what they have. And what they have right now is too much power. And what we need is to shift that power back to the populace, back to voters, especially voters who are becoming a part of this new majority. What specifically can you do to fight this? So we have set up Fair Fight 2020s. Voter suppression is real, but we win by overwhelming the system with our numbers. What we're doing through Fair Count is that we are actually helping increase the turnout rate and participation rate of communities of color primarily, but we're working with immigrant groups, we're working with young people, we're working with queer communities, in part because the LGBTQ community is not included directly in the census, and we need them to know they have to be counted to get the resources they need. Right. We can win the census 
if we turn out and if we demystify the census, but we also explain the urgency. And that's what those groups do. What are you planning around the effect the virus is going to have on this? So one, we believe absolutely that voter depression is going to be a major issue. And so we're doing our best to make certain that people don't feel defeated by voter suppression. They feel energized by it and angered by it. We want to turn that rage into action. We're helping these states build the the groups they need because we know the Republican National Committee intends to build an army of 50,000 poll patrols, basically people who go up and down the lines who try to intimidate voters. They did it before. They did it 40 years ago. They've been under federal consent order not to, but that consent order has been lifted. So we, we know they're coming back. We are doing our work to make sure that people know they have the right to vote, that they stay in line. So let's imagine that we do really well in this election. The people who are unhappy with what they perceive to be this Democrat party that has sent everything to hell in a handbasket, basically, aren't going anywhere. They'll still be angry. Donald Trump will still be tweeting in a really damaging way. So how do you see us going forward from this moment? I believe that the protests we're seeing and the fact that they haven't fully dissipated, that there are still flares of public demonstration is a good sign. Our responsibility is to recognize that there is no savior coming. I strongly believe in Joe Biden. I believe he will win. I believe that if we win the Senate, we can do so much good, but no good is permanent. And our responsibility is to not wait for our representatives to save us. Our responsibility is to make them do their work. And so regardless of the level of government, you're right to be worried if we think an election solves the problem. We win when we remember that elections are the beginning of the next cycle of change. They are never the end. Right. This is the problem with liberals and progressives. Again and again, they have taken their foot off the gas and presumed a victory to be permanent. I think we need to reteach ourselves about the nature of politics and being civically engaged. There is no um, ending achievement at which we all get to raise a toast to ourselves and go back and relax. I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) Stacey, you're the best. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a joy. Thanks so much for this time. Well, the presidential election may be over, but all eyes are still on Georgia. There are two Senate races headed to a runoff January 5. And Stacy will be right there in the middle of it all. To check out the work she's been doing, go to fairfight.com and faircount.org. To learn more about voter suppression, the census, and her vision for the country, check out Stacy's book, Our Time Is Now. All Ears is a production of Fork Films. The show was produced by Alexis Pankrazi and Christine Schomer. Lauren Wimbush is our associate producer. Sabrina Yates is our production coordinator. Our engineer is Veronica Rodriguez. Bob Golden composed our theme music. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. The podcast team also includes VP of production, Aideen Kane. Our executive producer is Kathleen Hughes. Learn more about the podcast on our website, forkfilms.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review All Ears wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.